11, 15 through 18. That's Mark 11, 15 through 18. In your pew Bibles, that is page 895. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. So they came to, to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of those money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wars through the temple. Then he thought, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a, it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. It was supposed to be one of those days that you never forget. It was supposed to be one of those monumental days in the life of a family that would stick with you for years to come. Now, if you have ever loaded up in a car to drive down and see a family member, if it was a son or a daughter, or maybe brother or sister, graduate from college, you know the kind of day I'm talking about. Uh, there are some of you who probably have sons and daughters, and you're paying for their college, and you're waiting for that day to come. Uh, but once, once that day finally gets here, it's, it's just such an exciting and, and a momentous occasion, and I was very excited just to a few months ago, just a year and a half ago, when that day finally came, and it was very exciting. My family met up with Catherine's family, and we had a big celebration lunch at uh, Burger King, one of the fine restaurants in Henderson. That, that gives you a little insight into a Phillips family celebration right there. That's uh, it's Burger King, but it was exciting. And so finally we went, and if you've ever gone through this before, you know exactly what happens next. We went after everything was over. And we went to load up all of my stuff in our car. Now, I hadn't really thought this moment through because I didn't realize that in doing this, my parents would actually see the inside of the dorm room. Uh, you can imagine a room that seemed to be just about as big as, as this platform with uh, two other guys living there. It, it was in pretty pitiful condition. And I never will forget the face my parents made as they stood in the doorway uh, wondering how their son could have lived like this for so many months. And our dorm mother, who, who ran the dorm, she didn't help very much by commenting about how that was the messiest room she'd seen in all her years of working with the university. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure my parents are still trying to recover from, from the trauma of that moment. You know, it's, it's very emotional. Uh, but it was, it was just something to look at and to see just... The, a mess, obviously. We were all trying to get our stuff out of here, so it looked worse than usual. And we can all relate to that, can't we? Can't you relate to someone coming over to your house or to your room that you weren't expecting? Someone that showed up and your immediate thought is, oh man, this is a mess. I've got to clean it up. And just in case you think that I spent my entire college career without cleaning, I will tell you that there is one time each semester where you can find every guy, no matter how he keeps his room, you can find every guy shopping for cleaning supplies. And that is once a semester, we would have a health inspection. And that was, that was the test, you know, where they'd go through and uh, they would do the old white glove type test that had to be dusted and really deep cleaned. And you would see guys you hadn't seen all semester outside, you know, trying to get a vacuum cleaner and cleaning up their rooms. 
And so there was that specific time in a semester, I remember people staying up to one or two in the morning trying to get it ready. Because when we know someone's coming, we try to get things prepared, don't we? Now be honest. If you know someone is coming over to your house, what's the first thing you want to do? Even if the house is clean already, our first instinct is to want to clean up, to want to prepare. We can relate to someone coming by unexpectedly, and we can relate to someone coming by when we've had a chance to prepare for them, to clean up. As we think about the text that Ray read for us this morning, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, if the Jews had really known who was going to visit the temple that day, if they had really known that God made flesh, that Jesus was going to be there face to face, seeing what was taking place in the temple, do you think they would have cleaned up a little bit? Do you think they would have done some, some cleaning, some rethinking of the way the temple looked? Jesus came along unexpectedly. And we read in those few verses about what he found. And so this morning, I'd like for us to try to discover why Jesus went through this really deep, deep cleaning. Why he cleaned house of all the merchants that had set up shop in the temple. And I want us to begin, if you haven't already, by turning to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look specifically at the first two verses. And while you're turning there, let me say that if you're visiting with us, uh, we're thrilled to have you here, and we want to do anything possible uh, to make you feel more welcome. If there's anything we can do, please, please let us know. Uh, we want to serve you, and, and we want to reach out and to do anything that we can. And so as we begin our study together, let's look at verses 15 and 16. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. I think these first two verses, as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem with his apostles and he enters into the temple, the place of worship, where the Jews worshipped Yahweh, where they worshipped God, he sees that one thing in particular has happened. And that is, the physical has overshadowed the spiritual. As Jesus enters into the temple, rather than seeing people who are engaged in prayer to God, who are devoted to God, he sees people selling doves for sacrifices, people changing money so they can pay the temple tax. It's really interesting, as we think about the actual temple itself, uh, a model on this next slide of the temple gives us an idea of where this took place. Uh, you can see that this is just the model because there are people standing in the background, but this gives us an idea of the format and layout of the temple. And so as we think of Jesus coming in and cleaning house, when we think about this outside court of the Gentiles, you see, that was the area that Jews were often tempted to sort of set up shop, literally, is in this outside court. And you see that there's an inner court there where there's a smaller wall, and that was an area that only the Jews could enter. But in the outside court, anyone could enter it. And so there's a specific area that was the court of the Gentiles, the largest portion of this outside court. And so anyone who wanted to come and to pray to God, even if they hadn't fully uh, become uh, converts to Judaism, if they weren't proselytes and they, they weren't Gentiles who practiced Judaism, if they just wanted to come, this was the area that they could come. And so as we think about Jesus coming in and and overturning the tables. It wasn't something that took place inside the temple. You remember, priests were the ones who went inside the temple and offered those sacrifices. This would have taken place in the outer court, 
the court of the Gentiles. And in that court, which was supposed to be dedicated to prayer, uh, there was a whole other purpose taking place. It was a physical process that had overshadowed a spiritual one. It's interesting that according to Jewish tradition, the court wasn't to be used as a way to enter the temple. In other words, there was a specific way to get to the inner courts of the temple so as not to interrupt anyone on the outer area. So if a Gentile had come in and he was praying, he shouldn't have been interrupted by people going straight through the temple. Well, the Jewish merchants had set up shop there. So if they've set up shop and they're selling sacrifices, what do you think happened? People were coming through. They were using that as a main entrance. They were picking up their sacrifices on the way in to the inner area of the temple. It would have distracted anyone who was trying to focus. Also, it's interesting that according to uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish writings, they were not allowed to have sandals, they were not allowed to have staffs, or even their, their wallets, their pouches for money. They were not allowed to have those inside the temple gates. So they were selling, buying and selling, in a place they weren't even supposed to have money to begin with. Isn't it interesting how those rules were set in place in the Jewish uh, tradition, the teachings of the rabbis, were set in place to avoid the physical overshadowing the spiritual. And we see that's exactly what happened. I want you to put yourself in the place of a Gentile who would have come in and wanted to learn something about Yahweh, the God that the Jews served. What if there was someone who entered in to that outer court of the Gentiles and all he or she knew about the God that the Jews were serving is what he saw in that court. Remember, the temple was a beautiful building that was a beacon for those who served God. So if you wanted to find out more about God, it just made sense you would walk into the temple. Now, the Jews that were in that outer court, what kind of message would they have sent to the Gentiles? Would they see Jews who were intent on glorifying God that had come to the temple specifically to worship, or did they see Jews that had set up shop that were exchanging currency at rates that would make them a pretty hefty profit? that were selling sacrifices that were specifically needed by those who were poor. They were making money. What kind of message would that have sent to the Gentiles? As we think about the Jewish merchants who'd set up shop, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves a difficult question. We're going to ask several difficult questions this morning as we think about this story. But first of all, we need to ask ourselves what kind of message we send to those who aren't Christians. You know, there's a very real possibility that people we run into, even this morning, are looking to us, who are Christians, as an example of what the God we serve is like. There might be some people who would walk into this foyer who are looking to find out more about God, and we're the first place they look. In fact, you may be here today for that very reason. And as Christians, our job, for those of you who are visiting, is to represent Christ to you. And so I need to ask myself some difficult questions. When I come to, to the worship every morning, every Sunday morning, when I come to be part of the congregation, am I looking for new faces, for new families, people I can reach out and get to know, or do I develop that kind of tunnel vision where I'm looking directly at the hallway to my Bible class and I get there and I'm looking directly at the people that I'm close to, the people I'm friends with, and I come in here and I look directly for my seat and make sure that I've got that seat and no one else is sitting there and I sit down and I don't look at anyone else around me? We're so blessed with growth. In fact, today we were introduced to several new families who had placed membership with us. And as many as are becoming a part of this family, we have that many more visitors. And what kind of message are we sending? 
You see, the Gentiles would have received a very confusing message from the Jews who claimed to serve God, but when they got to the temple, they saw that they were trying to make money off of each other. The physical had overshadowed the spiritual. But we also see that something else had taken place. In verse 17, And then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. You see, Jesus, as he explains the reason for clearing out the temple, quotes from two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. Because he is telling them, not only is the physical overshadowing the spiritual, but human purposes have overcome God's purpose. It's interesting when you think about the reason that the merchants had set up. You see, temple tax that was commanded in the Old Testament was paid in shekels. Now, when you consider the fact that the Romans had overtaken the area, they were in control. Roman currency, Roman money was what was used. So a lot of times there would be Jews who would enter the temple and they wouldn't have a shekel to pay the temple tax. All they would have is Roman currency, especially for those who were traveling. You would usually just carry Roman currency with you, so you'd need to exchange money. And those exchange rates were always kind of fluctuating, so it was easy to make a profit off of people who just wanted to do what God commanded, who just wanted to pay the temple tax. Interestingly enough, the doves that Jesus let loose were often used as sacrifices for the poor. Women would use them as purity offerings. Even lepers would use them. And in most cases, the people that were using doves as a sacrifice were poor. And so here you have merchants set up not just to take advantage of those who couldn't do anything about it, maybe who were traveling and needed to, to get money exchanged. You also had them taking advantage of those who were poor and who needed a sacrifice. You see, God's purpose was that the temple would be used as a place of worship. Human purposes where they would make it easier on themselves, they could wait to show up at the temple before they had to invest in a sacrifice, and those who were selling could make a pretty hefty profit along the way. The spiritual had been overshadowed, God's purposes had been overshadowed, and it's interesting to me that Jesus decided to take immediate action. And when you look at Jesus' actions at first, it might seem as if they were brash, as if they were out of anger. But when we think about the verses that he referred to, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice that the house of prayer was for all nations. Jesus is telling the Jews that this wasn't just for you. And what right did the Jews have to set up shop in that outer court of the Gentiles? This was designed as a place where everyone could pray. It's interesting that the Jews didn't set up their merchandise in the inner court, where it would disrupt them, or it would disturb them. They didn't mind doing it in the court of the Gentiles. It was a house of prayer for all nations, and interestingly, Jesus described it as a den of thieves. Think of that imagery for a second. When you think of a den of lions, or maybe a den of wolves, or some other kind of animal, we usually think of a place that's out of the way. Maybe a place hidden in a cave or in the woods where they can wait and I think that's interesting imagery, that it was a den of thieves, that thieves would go there, and that's where they felt like they were safe. That's where they felt like they could set up camp and make their homes and be able to take money from those who might be poor or traveling. Jesus took immediate action. He cleansed the temple. And most of us at this point are pretty excited about this fact. I mean, in the 21st century, 
we look back and see what Jesus does, and we think, well, it's about time. I mean, he definitely needed to take action. He definitely needed to do something. He definitely needed to purify that temple. Now I want to go to some of those challenging questions I talked about. If you would flip over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we read these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want us to focus specifically on verses 19 and 20. You see, Paul is addressing a group of people who are struggling with just about everything you can imagine. They were struggling with divisions, with immorality, with arguments. And so Paul, when addressing this, writes in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So here's the challenging question. The temple in Jerusalem needed a cleansing. As Christians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask ourselves, do our temples need to be cleansed? Is there anything that is in our lives, in our temples, that we need to get rid of? Do we need to take that immediate action that we saw Jesus take? As we think about our bodies and our lives as temples of the Holy Spirit, I'd like for us to leave here with an idea of exactly why we as Christians are called temples. Why is that imagery appropriate? I think there are a few different reasons. Number one, as Christians... We are called to stand out. You see, you couldn't be in Jerusalem without knowing where the temple was. The temple was a glorious building. In fact, immediately after this, in Luke's account, we read that the chief priest would tell Jesus exactly how many years it took, him, took them to build that temple. You see, it was a, a beautiful building, and it would have been easy for anyone in Jerusalem to see. It stood out. As Christians, we are called to stand out. To be temples of the Holy Spirit that no matter who is around us, they'll be able to know by our lives the God that we serve. A book recently was written entitled The Lonely Crowd. And there were several interviews in that book that described people and, and how they reacted by what other people thought. You know, it, it addressed issues such as peer pressure, uh, the pressure society places on us. And there was one little girl who was interviewed and I thought her response was interesting. As the interviewer was talking to her about superheroes, he asked her a question. He said, what kind of superhero would you like to be? Who is your absolute favorite superhero? And the girl thought for a second. She said, Superman. I like Superman. So he said, well, why is that? And so she thought for a minute and she said, well, he has all of those powers. I mean, he has the x-ray vision and and he can hear really well and he can see from afar off and he can even fly. And so the third question I thought was interesting. The interviewer said, well, would you like to be able to fly like Superman? And the girl thought and she said, well, I guess I would, as long as everybody else could do it too. I mean, if I were the only person who can fly, I'd kind of stand out. Isn't that interesting? That we might want those superhuman powers, but we don't want to stand out from anyone. We don't want to be unique. We don't want to be eccentric or peculiar. And yet as Christians, that's what we're called to do to stand out. We're called to live the kind of life that when people look at us, they see the one that we glorify. 
And it's easy for us to resist that. What do you think would happen? And this is just a hypothetical scenario, but what do you think Catherine would say if every day when I left for work, I stopped by the door and I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to head out and I'll see you just a second. And uh, I put the wedding ring in, in my pocket and took it off and just uh, went about my daily activities. How would you feel if your spouse did that? Well, we wouldn't be able to stand it, would we? Because we know that there's more to a wedding ring than just a piece of jewelry. We know that it symbolizes a special relationship, a lasting relationship, a relationship we're committed to. And we want people to see that. We want people to know that. And while that might sound obvious, the same is true in our relationship with God. We need to ask ourselves, we might take our relationship with our spouse seriously, but how seriously do we take our relationship with God? Do we treat it as something we can just take on and off? Our Christianity is something we can leave in a car when we walk into the office or we can leave in a locker when we head into the classroom? And maybe if doing something immoral or even illegal will help me in my business, I can step out of my relationship for a second and then step back in whenever I need to. You know, maybe if cheating on a test would help me get a better grade or even a better scholarship, I can just step out of my relationship with God and step back in whenever I have the opportunity. It doesn't work that way. As Christians, we have a committed relationship to stand out. Isn't that what a wedding ring does? Helps us to stand out? Let's people know that we belong to someone else. And if they were to look at us, we would be different than anyone else because of this special ring which indicates that we belong to another person. As Christians, we're called to live lives that are that serious and that committed to our Father. I mean, think about the excuses that we would give for wanting to take our wedding ring off when we left for work. We might say, well, it, I just don't like the way it looks. You know, if I'm in a crowd of people, people might notice it, and then I might feel kind of awkward. I don't know, it's, it's too constrictive. I, I, I just think it'd be better with it off, just for a little bit. Those arguments wouldn't make any sense. But how often are those the very pitfalls that we encounter when we try to live our Christian lives 24 hours a day? Well, I don't want to talk too much about God because then my friends might think I'm a little strange. I might stand out a little bit. I don't know. I just the ideas people have that go along with Christians, it's too constrictive. I, I don't want them to think of me like that. We're called to stand out, to live in a committed relationship. We're also called to be pure. Jesus here is cleansing the temple, purifying it from sin. Two weeks ago, we talked about Josiah, the king who took down every idol, altar, and place of worship for false gods. Every single one in Judah was taken down. There were other kings that would take down most of them, but leave a few up. Maybe one or two poles of Asherah, or maybe a couple of altars to Baal. Josiah took all of them down. You see, when we are called to live pure lives, we have to constantly work to keep our entire life pure. Paul would describe it in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 as taking every thought into captivity for Christ. Actively working to take every thought we've had and to bring it in captivity to Christ. And so if we think about keeping our temples, our bodies pure, we have to ask another difficult question. Have there been any thoughts this week that I haven't taken into captivity for Christ? Have there been any thoughts this weekend that I haven't taken into captivity? Have there been any thoughts this morning that I haven't worked hard to take into captivity 
for Christ? It's so tempting, isn't it? To take most of the sin out of our lives, but to leave just a couple of pet sins in there that we can still sort of indulge in, but we feel pretty good because most of it's pure. I mean, the rest of the temple might be clean, but there might be just a couple of people selling some sacrifices. There might be a few people changing money. But other than that, the rest of the temple is pure, and we feel good about that. It's easy to apply that in our spiritual lives. Just our few little, little weaknesses. Our few little pet sins that we let grow and that we feed. We're called to take every thought into captivity. We're called to live pure lives. We're also designed as temples to glorify God. When you look at the sins the church in Corinth was facing, you name it, there was someone there struggling with it. And Paul comes back to this thought of being a temple and said, don't you know you were designed to glorify God? They were coming out of a pagan culture, a culture that indulged in nearly everything. And Paul is telling them, you were designed for a higher purpose. You know, today our culture is beginning to look more and more like the one in Corinth. We might not have the idols or the temples to actual physical, lowercase g, gods, but we do make several things in America our God. Security may be our God. Financial freedom might be our God. And you name it, we have placed it in a position of control in our lives at some point in our nation's history. We resemble the Corinthians that Paul was writing to. And he says, above all else, don't you know you were called to glorify God? Verse 20, he says, you were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. They're not your own. You were bought at a price. As Christians, we were bought at a price. And as temples, we need to glorify God. We were also designed to represent God. That's why the temple was so important. People would travel from miles around. Jews would travel from all around to worship at the temple because the temple there represented God and His presence with His people. It represented a place that they could worship God. And as a Christian, my obligation is to represent God. We talked earlier about Gentiles who would come into that outer court and maybe the only vision they'd have of God were the Jews that they saw worshiping there. Maybe the only vision they'd have of God is what they saw at the temple. There are people that we come in contact with every day. And the only vision they have of God may be this temple right here. How are we going to represent God? How are we going to act and speak on God's behalf? These are some challenging questions. But the good news is, when Jesus entered into the temple, even though physical things had overshadowed spiritual ones, even though human purposes had covered up God's purposes, He was able to take immediate action and to fully cleanse the temple. Do you know that even today, no matter how messed up or how cluttered up, our own lives may be, Jesus still has the power to come in. Through the power of Jesus' blood, we can be not just redeemed, we can be purified. We can be cleansed. And even if we've started that walk, even if we've decided to make our bodies a temple and we've let sin kind of crowd out the original purpose, we've been distracted by the physical, by the human, Jesus still has just as much power as we saw in the book of Mark. Maybe not to physically come in and overturn some tables, but we know that all things are possible with God. And when we appeal to God through prayer, He can help us cast that sin out of our lives. In fact, we can't overturn all those tables ourselves. 
We need God's help. And if you're here this morning and you might be in the position of some of those Gentiles who had entered the outer court of the temple, just looking for a vision of God, looking at, at the Jews to see more about the God they serve. You may be here this morning just interested in this God that you hear about and you're looking for answers. We'd like to help you find those answers. And the good news Jesus offers is that the same one who purified that temple can purify our lives, can redeem us, and offer us everlasting life. But this morning, as we've asked ourselves some difficult questions, you might have thought about certain sins that have kind of set up camp in your own temple. Maybe there are some things that need to be cleansed out of your life. Every one of us finds ourselves in that situation at some point in time. And there's no better time than right now to make those needs known. Whatever state you're in, wherever you are in life, the same Savior who cleaned that temple can redeem us. And if you'd like to make the choice to follow that Savior, please come forward and let it be known as we stand and sing together.